This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Uh, where you had uh, different uh, kind of uh, uh, more flexible way of doing design. Sure, yeah. So, uh, do you yeah, want to talk and, uh, about you know, that my uh, recent studies over the last couple of years, I'm just sort of, uh, one of my major challenges has been um, tackling uh, complexity of uh, increasingly large enterprise applications. You know, you get a, a team of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people working on a project and um, people are making changes all over the place. Um, there's all sorts of things that, you know, you look at and you're like, what is this? So you have to spend time uh, sort of reading through that to understand it. So and uh, eventually once something gets big enough, it, uh, you know, is really no longer approachable or comprehensible. So, um, so that's sort of the problem that I set out to uh, understand. Um, so, you know, mostly I've tapped into uh, resources. You know, this is definitely a problem that's been uh, fairly well trodden at this point, but just trying to essentially master and bring together a cohesive set of ideas for that. Uh, so um, sort of in my travels, you know, we see uh, microservices is sort of emerging as a type of service oriented architecture. Um, and uh, essentially, you know, what, I, what I'm seeing here is, uh, is the bigger pattern, which is, um, you know, this is sort of one of the cornerstones of object oriented programming, which is how do we build something and uh, hide essentially the complexity of that thing. Um, I would say, you know, if I can make a little uh, analogy here, you know, we all drive vehicles all the time, um, but truthfully to drive a vehicle, you don't actually need to know much about how vehicles work. So uh, for instance, you know, we have some uh, fairly complicated tech, electric vehicles, uh, hybrids, uh, gasoline engines, um, but uh, anyone, you know, my grandma could walk in, uh, you know, get in a car and start driving it and literally know nothing about the internal functioning of that vehicle, uh, unless, of course, she needed to work on it. Um, but that's why we have specialists in mechanics and things like that. So, um, so the notion of that is to sort of recreate that in the software world. You know, we, uh, you know, we can build something that has a tremendous amount of complexity, but presents a, a consistent and relatively simple interface so that we can access that complexity and use it without having to completely understand how it works under the hood. Uh, and then the only time we would actually need to know how to work, how to um, modify that is to, or excuse, uh, the only time we would need to fully understand that is if we needed to repair it, make changes or enhancements. Um, and so, um, so you bring, um, you know, so, so that's one concept that comes in is sort of, you know, just uh, really getting back to the roots of OOP and remembering that encapsulation is so important uh, to handle some of this complexity. Uh, so now we take a look at uh, bringing microservices into the picture and we say, okay, well, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, someone made a really great point and they're like, you know, we've, we've gotten so focused on the technology, like what's the database or what's, you know, now it's uh, document databases or uh, cloud services, you know, they're, they're like looking at the tech and saying, okay, well, what, you know, you know, what's the tech that we want to bring into the picture that's going to serve us the best and, uh, and realizing that, uh, that that approach is sort of a little misguided in the sense that, uh, you know, tech is more of like, is, is the tools, but ultimately at the end of the day, 
uh, software is there to create an analogous model to some real world problem. And that real world problem may be quite complex. And so, uh, but if you look at any good software, that software is uh, set up to model that real world problem. And um, and really doesn't have much to do with you know where the data is being stored or how, um, but really the you know the relationships between um, the elements. And so you know essentially when we're, we're when we're modeling a problem, um, the tools we have are, are provided by our language. So like in C sharp, you're dealing with uh, classes, you know methods, you know all those, and, and you and the way those relate to one another, and the sort of behavior uh, and properties you give on each class, and the uh, you know and so you assemble this. Uh, rather large model in order to uh, to solve to solve a problem so um, you know whatever that may be I mean who knows maybe you're doing some complex cal uh, chemical analysis maybe you're doing some financial work uh, you know uh, like analytics on something um, and of course the more accurate that software model is to the real world the uh, the better the results it's going to give you you know of course if you have a poor model of, of something then it's going to give you inaccurate results but if you have an accurate model then it's going to give you better results and it turns out the world is uh, quite complicated, you know, like if you really get into the details of just about any profession, um, you can see that, you know, quickly it blows up into a tremendous amount of, uh, of detail. Um, and so, um, so sort of the, the, the main point to hit at home here is that, you know, uh, at its core software needs to, uh, or the point of software is to solve this problem. And then it's, it takes technology and uh, puts it to sort of the outside of that and says, you know, it's actually not that important where we store our data because maybe that will change over time. You know, uh, it's like, is is our is a relational database really yeah. that pertinent to the problem that we're solving? Um, you know, because it's a uh, relational database is solving the problem of data storage and getting it structured. Uh, but a document database is also uh, solving the same problem in a sort of different way. And that becomes uh, their problem domain. Um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, of course, you know, if, if someone has taken on the problem of storing data, then that would be, you know, the application, you know, Oracle, SQL Server, um, you know, any of those, uh, you know, that's their sort of primary domain, right? But then the people that are using that databases uh, or those, you know, uh, data stores, uh, their primary problem isn't how to store data. They're sort of like leveraging the, this framework to solve the problem for them. Um, and so that's that's led me to kind of the third piece here, which is uh, essentially uh, it's it makes it so that your applications are centric around the problem that you're trying to solve. And so in, uh, in a language with dependencies, that means that, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times people will come in with the approach that, um, They'll say, okay, uh, you know, and if, as, as, a, as an engineer, I'm sure we've all run into this, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll start tackling a problem, and the immediate thing someone says is, okay, well, how do we want to model this in our tables? You know, they immediately think of, like, what relational database structure this is going to fit into, and, um, and I think that's, uh, like, a... Uh, an approach that gets us into trouble on a, on a long enough term. And really, um, I think switching that model on its head such that we say, okay, well, you know, the, the most powerful tool we have is, uh, you know, like relational structure gives you, you know, uh, tables or, you know, and uh, relations between them. But all in all, it's not that flexible of a structure. It's not to say that it's a bad structure. Um, but if you look at the flexibility you gain through uh, like C Sharp or Java and classes or, you know, through JavaScript, whatever your favorite language is, uh, it's quite, quite a bit more comprehensive. 
Um, and so it's, it's essentially putting the most complex comprehensive pieces in, inside of the tool that gives you the most power. So essentially that's instead of saying what, you know, what relational structures would uh, accommodate this thing we're trying to do, it's saying, okay, well, actually what classes, what, you know, what objects do we need to assemble to best solve this problem? And then when we, when it comes to the problem of saying, okay, well, we've built up this complex software model of this thing we want to solve, maybe, you know, like I say, chemical composition, some financial problem, whatever, then, you know, and so we have a model loaded with data, then we say, okay, well, probably we want to save this somewhere. Why don't we, you know, like take this and serialize it and we can outsource it to um, some sort of data st uh, storage framework at, at which point you can sort of uh, decide where that's going to be. And so, um, so to come back to your earlier question here, um, talking of like sort of the concentric concentric circles, uh, there's a notion uh, we talked about a little bit uh, called, uh, I think right. it's known by several different names. Uh, Rob Martin uh, sort of coined clean architecture. Um, others, uh, uh, it goes by onion architecture. And essentially what that's, uh, the model there is saying, the, the, the centermost piece of your application architecture um, should be uh, that sort of core model in your language. And that core model shouldn't actually know anything about, uh, you know, your persistence layer or uh, any other frameworks, including like UI framework. Um, so you want to kind of, kind of put the guts of your application in that centermost piece. And then the next outermost most layer, um, you know, you can set up uh, essentially um, interfaces to say, okay, well, you know, really the interest, the thing we're interested in working with is the classes that solve our problem. And so you can create an interface or whatever is appropriate in your language to say, okay, well, we want to save uh, one of these models we built up. And so the interface itself knows about your model and, um, you know, and, and how you might uh, save or retrieve it, maybe kind of like a repository pattern for your, uh, for your models. Um, but then somewhere, somewhere else in your application, kind of more of an infrastructure layer, it would actually deal with the implementation de details of how to actually persist and retrieve that. Um, and so it essentially moves, uh, moves that into more of an implementation detail. Um, and uh, I think, uh, let's see here. I think it was uh, Sam Newman that said that uh, essentially, you know, when you're when you're building a house, the most important part is really the composition of like the rooms and like where the walls are, where the doorways are. It's it's the space you're creating to live in and to function in. Um, you know, the color that you paint the walls, um, the exterior cover, whether it be like brick or uh, siding or whatever, is more of an implementation detail. And at the end of the day, it's really you know, it's it's important. You need to protect the walls, but it's not why you're building the house um, you know that's so so those things end up being sort of an implementation detail and it suggests moving things like data persistence to be more of just an implementation detail because you know you could really solve that in a number of ways but your primary problem domain you can you know is is really what you want to be focusing on so um, so I recognize that's uh, kind of long but there's a lot of build up there so um, does that answer your question Yeah, you know, the, you've covered the three important issues uh, uh, for the uh, design patterns. Uh, you know, going back to the concentric notion, you got the core that you were talking about, and that you know, it's it's kind of your, uh, your like in an operating system, you have a core, and it it doesn't necessarily know all about the drivers. It doesn't know about uh, all, all it does is a process context switch or, you know, if you're in a Unix architecture, 
Um, and uh, but the the user interface, the, uh, all the hardwares communicating with that that core piece of software is very reliable. It doesn't change a lot, um, and uh, it, you know it's a it's a central piece to your your architecture. Uh, how do you you know I'm I'm leaning a lot towards this design of where you have uh, interfaces uh, because as your as your real world model as you get more knowledge of your real world model your interfaces uh, increase. Uh, can you talk about we talked about a secondary uh, concentric circle as, as models start to be added on to how those interfaces uh, uh, get formed as kind of like hubs. And then you interact between uh, the concentric circles or between the hubs. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of yeah. object oriented design? Uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a, I, I've sort of noticed maybe a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of interfaces. You know, I like I look at a, a lot of different code, and um, I think at some point uh, people sort of come to the conclusion that you're like, oh, well, whenever I, I build a class, I need to have a corresponding interface for that. And so uh, the interface sort of becomes the afterthought in so many ways. You know, they, they jump in there and they spend up time building up, you know, a, a class hierarchy or whatever they uh, end up needing to do. And then uh, when they get finished, they're like, okay, well, let's extract an interface from this class and uh, and not really giving that interface uh, much uh, much real thought but uh, you know if, if you if you take a step back from software um, you know we we uh, we as human uh, interface with the world all the time and so uh, so for instance uh, simple stuff like home appliances uh, you know you walk up and you have uh, your microwave right and so you want to you have an interface which is the door opening and closing and you have a button, bunch of buttons there and that's a relatively simple interface for you to interact with the complexity inside. And so essentially uh, interfaces uh, as designed or they're, they're sort of the seams in the world. And so, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's the seam between where the microwave ends and where you start, where your hands uh, start and interact there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it would be probably far more complicated if, uh, if we didn't have a nice panel there instead of whenever you wanted to heat up some water or make some mac and cheese, you had to, uh, you know, pull off a panel in the microwave and start like connecting wires or, you know, dip switches or something like that. It's, it's just like a little bit too, uh, too close there. And so that's a really poor place to put a seam in the world because it's, it becomes very complicated um, and very hard to understand. And so, um, you know, and, and also, uh, so, so that's one, one major purpose of interfaces is to, to, to find a good place for a seam. So to relate that back to, uh, to software, um, I, I think for a lot of reasons, especially like testability, it's sort of good to put an interface on everything, but, um, but then there are the interfaces that are the seams of your application. And so being more mindful of where um, major components start and end um, sort of creates, uh, allows you to create that encapsulation um, that we uh, talked about a little bit in, uh, in the first item there that we discussed. Well, it seems like um, interfaces are perfect for generics. And without interfaces, you can't do generics. Um, you know, Apple just came out with protocols. And uh, it was really interesting because to me, protocols are a lot mm -hmm. like extent, uh, extension static functions uh, and, uh, and interfaces. It's like a hybrid between the two. Uh, but basically what a protocol does is it lets you define 
uh, a structure called a protocol and inside of it you have an attribute and you have a method and uh, you can take a class and you can extend that class by that protocol. So now uh, that class now can, uh, the reason why they did that is, uh, let's say you have a, a, a class called cat and it, it can meow, it can eat, it can drink, it can walk. And uh, so each one of those would be uh, different protocols and then you'd have attributes on them. Uh, but then if you had something that was, had shared some of the similarities, but not all of those features, uh, rather than trying to figure out an inheritance tree, uh, you would just select the protocols that you wanted and attach that and extend that to the class. Um, where I, you were talking about before was a little bit more advanced where you were talking about concentric circles, meaning that let's say like you have an application you've built and it has microservices, it has classes, it has interfaces. And then you have this uh, new level of functionality that's going to exist somewhat external. Then the interfaces can uh, communicate almost like a router or a neuron on a brain, uh, synaptic connection. Um, do you kind of see like software becoming more like the brain in terms of? Oh yeah, how and uh, you know, I mean, things? really, just to, to that note, I mean, if you if you look at the uh, sort of macro on things, uh, especially with uh, recurrent neural networks, um, I mean, software is already looking very much so like uh, like a neural network. I mean, it's it seems to be uh, almost an emergent property of software to uh, appear more and more like a neural network as things get more sophisticated. So, um, but definitely a philosophical piece there sort of interesting to talk about, but, uh, um, but yeah, back to your, uh, point with the, you know, with the, uh, onion architecture and, uh, interfaces there, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of interfaces or at least good interface design is, uh, is essentially to hide, uh, a lot of what's going on under the hood. So, uh, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, if for instance, your interface is, uh, is really complicated, then it makes it confusing to interact with. You don't know what it needs. You don't know what it's going to give back to you. Um, and so, you know, you want to, you want to make your interface in a way that makes sense and, uh, and simplifies things and also hides things, you know, that's a, a key aspect of it. Um, and so, um, you know, but also that, that interface acts as a seam, uh, in, in the sense that, um, things behind the scenes can change even dramatically as long as the interface contract is fulfilled, then it doesn't matter how that happened. Um, one of the things that we see um, is, is a, it's been a fantastic example over time is um, like power outlets. Um, uh, the power outlet uh, in its current form, I think has been around since the 60s or 70s, we might've added the polarization or the ground. Um, so little minor modifications, but you know, mostly the power outlet hasn't really changed too much in the last you know, however many years, and and yet, um, you know, it works just fine. You could still plug in a fan from the '60s into a, into a modern outlet, and it would work just fine. So that interface um, has been uh, very valuable over time. And the only requirement to that is that we supply, you know, 110 or 220 if you're in a country that does that, and um, and that you have a, a certain amount of amperage available. So that's sort of part of the contract there. But then otherwise, it defines the shape of of the plug, so you know, so we've used it, so we change the shape if uh, characteristics of that change a little bit, like in uh, Europe or whatever else. Um, but uh, but for the most part, behind the scenes, like how that power gets generated can change dramatically. We can put solar panels on a roof. We could have a bank of batteries. It could be uh, you know coal, nuclear, wind, any of these things, and no one plugging into it needs to know where those come from. And so. Um, 
So in a lot of ways, to go back to the software with the concentric circles, you would think of uh, of the power plant as being sort of the infrastructure piece, and that becomes the implementation details. So it's like how the power gets generated isn't so important. You just know that you need power, and you don't care where it comes from, and that's being supplied from the infrastructure. Um, same thing like in, inside of software. You're like, I know I need to save and retrieve things, but I don't really care how that gets done. I mean, it could be done in one of 50 different ways and possibly even open to new technology. So let's sort of put that on the outside of our application because um, when it's uh, when we don't make that essential dependency, it's a lot easier to change out over time. So, um, you know, of, of course, a lot of this is uh, it's sort of hard to explain with words. Uh, diagrams oftentimes do a much better job in these cases. So, um, but. Yeah, I was reading. I was reading this thing about dependency injection, you know, and that, and, uh, you know, interfaces fit very well with dependency injection. You can uh, inject the repository, you know, the resolver then uh, resolves to the concrete class. And so you don't really even have to worry too much uh, when you're designing things about the concrete class. And that's one thing I like about the microservices is they could all be described in interfaces up front. Um, but I was thinking that that kind of that that satellite hub thing is a lot like data vault uh, in the sense that you can constantly be expanding your system without uh, jeopardizing the stability or yeah, basically the stability of the, mm -hmm. the your your main concentric circles. So once you get something well defined, it's very stable. You don't want to be introducing lots of change or is that a bad way to look at it? Should we always be introducing lots of change, creating uh uh, maybe some chaos on the edge of, you know, or your innovation on the edge of chaos and, uh, you know, constantly be morphing these interfaces? Or do you think of them as just adding on additional satellites and then creating linkages to those satellites and getting the functionality? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of it is that I, I would say, if anything, you want your interfaces to be the most stable part of any application. Um, if you can design an interface in such a way that interface would never need to change, then that means that uh, your implementation of that can change freely and everything that depends on the interface doesn't need to know about those internal changes. And so, you know, a lot of the, the point of all this is to sort of uh, minimize complexity, but also minimize rippling changes. You know, I'm sure we've all been in a project where we want to make a change maybe to like an ORM, but maybe that uh, uh, artifacts of that ORM are spread throughout our application. And so we're like, oh, wow, we'd really like to update to this new technology, but we can't. We like literally have to rewrite our entire application in order to do so um, because we've taken a deep dependency on this uh, on this ORM. And so, um, so what it's saying is, it's is to remove the artifact artifacts of our uh, of our infrastructure pieces and and uh, put an interface there as sort of a gatekeeper and say, okay, everything that might need to rely on this data storage, let's have it go through this interface that doesn't expose the uh, implementation details of like our ORM, and so it keeps everything inside of that container sort of pure, um, and that's where our container would go, sort of the center of the concentric circle. Um, so the Venus Berry Center would be the most pure. And then as we move out in terms of concentric circles, that's where we start uh, introducing or uh, touching those external services. 
And so uh, one of your questions there was uh, wondering like how much, you know, should change there um, in, in that central most piece. And, uh, you know, really that stuff is, it's going to change as much as it needs to, but eventually it's going to stabilize and sort of be uh, refined into a sophisticated model of the problem we're trying to solve. Hmm. So, but because it doesn't know anything about like the ORM we're dealing with or whatever else, then, you know, those details can change as, as it sees, as we see fit. So say for instance, we're scaling our, our application, you know, we go from maybe, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 users to 10 million users, and suddenly our data persistence just can't keep up. Um, and so this would allow us to uh, re-implement that interface with something else of our choosing, and um, you know, and we could do that without having to change uh, the the guts of our application out. So, um, you know, yeah. What I I when I do, uh, I've noticed like as I've been coding and. Uh, you know, trying to get closer towards automation and uh, and uh, uh, generating, having the you know programs writing programs that uh, I, I I get these interfaces and they're just very uh, I guess you would call them aesthetically pleasing or they are minimalistic, but they just uh, they're so reusable and they become these foundation pieces and I haven't changed them. And I started noticing this pattern. I was like, that's kind of like an ideal that we should get as a programmer to, you know, in terms of efficiency on code, uh, is to get a good design uh, that, that doesn't change a lot, but yet is very uh, flexible. Like, I, I know generics are just fantastic for that. You know, they just, you just throw all your different class types mm -hmm. and it just basically does the same functionality on it. Um, what I was wondering is you mentioned about seams. The interfaces are a great places to determine seams. Uh, is that a is that an intuitive? Are we talking intuition where we say, okay, this might be a good place to do a seam, or is there is it kind of a? Can you explain yeah, more I mean, about seams would essentially be um, sort of major shifts of focus. So. Um, you know, so it's like if you if you think about, uh, you know, I, I think the best uh, analogy there has been sort of like cells, right? So you have a bunch of cells. They're sort of like, you know, like organic living cells, plant cells, whatever. And uh, each one has kind of its own job and it fits from one into the next. And um, so you can think of a cell uh, as like each one is sort of there to solve a specific little problem, you know, whatever that ends up being. Um, and um, and mostly it's self-contained. And so then you have the, you know, the outer membrane. And so uh, essentially from, you know, from, you know, each cell, you know, they're all connected together, um, but yet they're, they're also individual discrete um, things. And so essentially, you know, at what point does it stop being one cell and actually start being the next? And you can say, okay, well, that's the, you know, sort of the outer, outermost membrane and they communicate to each other through um, uh, chemical signals, but they are like distinct and separate units that are essentially individual and autonomous. And so it's saying to sort of build software in this structure as well. And so this, the seam essentially would be where, um, where, where solving one problem ends and solving the next problem begins, essentially. And so, um, you know, so, so really it is sort of the, the context of the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and uh, in terms of, you know, I've been looking at uh, domain-driven design by Eric Evans. Uh, he sort of uh, came up with that back in the early 2000s and, and of course, played with that for with years before. Um, but he introduced this idea of a bounded context, which is essentially 
the, this is the context and where uh, in, in which we're trying to solve this specific problem. So, and uh, essentially you'd want seams between that that problem and the next problem over uh, because uh, software gains its most complexity when you try to solve too many things at once. That's where you get uh, things like single responsibility principle. Like let's sim mm -hmm. simplify this thing by letting it solve one problem because you know uh, the human mind only has the capacity to sort of think about so many things at once. So if we can get a bunch of uh, bigger pieces that solve um, sort of more complex problems, we can start fitting those together in a way that um, that also makes sense. So uh, sort of a modular approach. So, um, you know, essentially. Yeah, that was kind of like what you and I were talking about that one day uh, where, you know, having simple things where it just does, you know, very loosely coupled, tight, cohesive, but small little modules, and then you have these higher level modules or uh, uh, control mechanisms that are using uh, the results yeah. down there. Well, and think of it like, uh, like so one model. of the things that's sort of relatively new um, that's available, like a lot of plan, uh, platforms, I think at, uh, Windows Azure and AWS uh, also um, offers like AI services. So we, we now have comprehensive uh, speech to text essentially. And so uh, this one service out there, its job is just to take a speech recording and translate it into the corresponding text. And that in and of itself is a very complex problem, relying on a lot of other things. But, you know, the interface there, the seam is saying, okay, well, I'll send you an audio stream, you send, send me back a string, you know, in its, in its simplest form. And so, you know, essentially, that allows anyone that wants to leverage that particular piece of tech to do so. But it, it makes it so that the the job of, of doing that uh, speech to text is clearly someone else's, right? Yeah, and so um, so if you if you set up a nice interface yeah. there, that means that the speech to text, everything underneath the hood can continue to be refined and sophisticated, but then everything relying on that interface uh, can continue to just you know send what it's always send a sound a sound clip and get back what it needs, and actually the the fidelity of that or the quality over that can be improved over time. Um, or even possibly changed out entirely. You know, maybe um, you've written your whole code base to go against this interface, and if you can, um, you know, find another someone else that uh, implements uh, their their solution in, in a similar way, so that you could adopt that interface, um, then your whole application doesn't need to change at all. It can just you can like literally change out your whole provider. And so that uh, so unless your problem domain is actually solving uh, speech to text, which it is someone's. Um, then you know then you're like i, I don't want to have to worry about this i don't want to have to think about the nuances i just want to utilize this um and so you know we do this all the time with uh, like third-party services like if we want to map something we use google maps there's a pretty well-defined interface there an api and we're like hey give me a map or give me directions or plot this on a, on a graph or what's nearby this latitude and longitude and so um so we can interface with this but under the hood you know, Google Maps, like mapping itself is quite a complicated problem. So, um, but we can sort of leverage or outsource the work uh, to this other thing that's fairly well-defined. Um, and so it's essentially just to take this notion of uh, almost like third-party services and bring it a little close to home and say, well, why don't we just build ourselves a little third-party service that solves one job well, and then we can essentially offload, um, you know, uh, our work into that service and then sort of forget about how it works internally, sort of the encapsulation there. 
So, um, so that would be a, a, a seam. And essentially, you have to sort of define where one problem starts and where the next begins. And that's a bit of the, you know, architecture piece. So, um, yeah. Well, uh, where time's about up, and uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, again, it makes me uh, it, it makes me feel really good about uh, design patterns. I know you've influenced me on interfaces, and I'm definitely thinking a lot more. Uh, maybe in closing, you could sh uh, tell users how to get a hold of you if you want them to contact you with questions or just uh, you know. Oh uh, yeah, uh, I would just if you wanted to look some some into remarks. more information. Um, you know, maybe look at uh, Clean Architecture by uh, Robert Martin. That's been very influential. Uh, and uh, there's also Onion Architecture by a, uh, I forget his name, uh, first name, but uh, Palermo, I believe is his last name. So um, also very influential there. Um, and uh, if you'd like, you can send me a message on LinkedIn. I'm on there as uh, Lucent Fox. Uh, let's see here. I think I've got my actual uh, link. I think it's just LinkedIn slash in slash Lucent Fox. And, uh, you know, feel free to add me as a friend or shoot me a message if you have other questions. So. Well, you know, it's yeah. Friday. Happy Friday, and, for sure. Uh, happy Friday. So. Okay. Yeah, thank well, you very much. Uh, thank you right. for your time, and I'll talk to you.